Sure. Um, so, yeah, Luan, you can tell this story as short or as long as you want. There, you know, it's really just giving some context for folks, and then it also typically something when someone introduces themselves gives us an opportunity to ask another question. You know, to mm -hmm. keep things moving, but there's not like a Basically, I'm just saying there is no wrong answer. Like any way you want to roll with this is totally cool. Yeah, it's not a formal bio or anything. Yeah, it's just <laughs> just some context for folks that. I understand. Know. It does make sense how, yeah. anyways, yeah. people like move throughout their life and how life unfolds one quest after another. I would say. Yeah. So, um, yeah, my name is Loan. Uh, right now, I'm 38 years old, and I'm speaking to you from France. I was born in France from a French mother and a Chinese Vietnamese father. So that already says a lot, because mm. um, that means also growing up with pieces uh, of culture missing somewhere. <laughs> so from... Mm. Mm, like, I really see that my life is a little bit like as a pass of the salmon, you know, that big fish that is swimming mm -hmm. backward towards the source and countercurrent. So uh, spending a lot of efforts doing so. So that's very much what I've been doing from growing up in France in this little family. I first... Uh, was very eager to travel from a very young age, especially to see something else than France and than Europe and than the West. I was very thirsty to see a wider world or a different world and to reconnect with my roots. And that didn't happen so early. I first started on Mosso as an activist. So I was very engaged as a left-wing activist, and I actually traveled in occupied territories in Palestine when I was 18, 19, during the second uprising for nine wow. months, joining various projects, mostly social projects, projects with women, and basically facing what war is with a very deep question within myself of what is war, what is peace, what are the conditions for peace and how do people survive in difficult situations, basically. Mm -hmm. But also somehow during, I mentioned this first trip because that's in Jerusalem that I met uh, Buddhism. I met a Japanese Buddhist monk who uh, was living in Jerusalem and used to walk the West Bank chanting sutras and who invited me to join him. And so I did. I actually walked the entire occupied territories following this monk for, for months and offering just little workshops with families wherever we would stop at refugee camps and villages. Anyways, that's a little anecdote, but it does matter because for me, it was really a turning point in my uh, quest as a very young person opening up to the world and trying to understand what this world was and what my place could be from trying to do a lot, trying to uh, change things in a way that was very much in action, in doing things. So this entire journey made me realize that maybe there was a different way to operate and that maybe in this world there were people who were apparently doing very little but who are able to uh, purify and pacify their own heart and their own energy field to such an extent that this would have a much wider impact than mm -hmm. anything one would be able to achieve just running around trying to do things on the outside, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that was some, that for me, that was a big turning point anyway, in the way my life unfolded little by little afterwards. So I still uh, continued being like very engaged as an activist and also professionally because I went back to university and I became a project manager for NGOs to mm, work internationally. Okay. I specialized first in managing projects um, dealing with human trafficking 
and sex mm. work and prostitution and the prostitution industry. And I worked in that field for some years, mostly in Asia, in India, in Vietnam, and also in France with uh, African women. But uh, let's say that concomitantly in the same time that I studied and got involved in that very intense field, it's really like working in hells, if you will. Yeah. Humanly, it's like very intense and heavy. So parallelly to that, I got very much interested in Buddhist meditation, in Vipassana meditation, in Zen lineages. And one step... After the other, I started practicing. I met uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and the community of engaged Buddhism here in France. And from there, I really like took a lap of faith, maybe you could say, in my life. Mm. And I left for Vietnam uh, on the invitation of a friend who was a monk and who introduced me to elders there, to all the monks there. So I had the opportunity to practice in hermitages in sacred mountains of southern Vietnam for some for some years, actually. For a few years in a row, I was there months at a time, practicing mm. in small hermitages. So that's, just to sum it up a little bit clearly, let's yeah. say that's my pre-Taoism and pre-China life. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. So, and wow. from this background, let's say I was one day I just like met one in a in a meditation center actually uh, in Thailand. I met one one young man who was coming from China from the Wudang Mountains and who somehow had the intuition to put me in touch with his master there. And so I got in touch with uh, Li Shifu, who became my Taoist master at the Five Immortals Temple in Wudang. Uh, so that's a funny story. I can say it if we have more time later. But I got in touch with him. It didn't happen just very quickly. I first heard from him through this man whom I met, and I got introduced. And finally, I got invited to join one of the first cohort of his international students. So just to introduce uh, the Five Immortals Temple and Lishifu very quickly. So the Five Immortals Temple is a small temple that uh, is located in the Wudang range of mountains. So uh, Wudang, of course, is in the center of China in Hubei province. It's a very ancient and very well-known center for Taoism and internal martial arts. So that's really maybe the one place where Taoism and international, internal martial arts were elaborated, trained, practiced, transmitted through our, the ages. Mm -hmm. And so the Five Immortals Temple is just a small temple among the many collection of temples that used to uh, be erected throughout the range of mountains that is Wudang, because Wudang is not just one mountain, but a range with many peaks. And so that one temple, just like many others temple, most other temples in China, um, let's say at the end of the 20th century, was um, pretty much in a state of ruin. Or it was very much falling apart because it had been half taken down during the Cultural Revolution and then it was not, it was hard to maintain temples during all these times that it Yes, that religious life was not allowed in China, basically. So the project of Li Shifu was to restore the temple. And his idea, after decades of working on it by himself, basically building bricks with his own end, collecting clay from the mountain, shaping the, shaping the bricks, uh, baking the bricks in earth-made oven and building back the temple by himself, he had this idea to invite international, international students interested in Taoism and to collect their donations and subsequently build back the temple. So that's the story yeah. of the temple. So when I got there the wow. first time in 2010, I wasn't even in the first cohort of international students maybe the second or the third 
but we were still a very small group of young people and we had this opportunity to train there in immersion for six months in many various fields, so like internal martial arts, medicine, ceremonies, scripture studies, along with very uh, simple and raw temple life. So you have to garden, you have to empty your toilet, you have to carry your rice up the mountain, things like this. Yeah. You have to handle your water, your, like, everything you need to mm-hmm. do when you live on top of a mountain, basically. Mm-hmm. And little by little, so this place, as uh, the Five Immortals Temple, as it was restored, also developed in a sort of international training center. Like Lichefo got used, more, more, more used to uh, deal with foreigners and to teach to foreigners. Um, he also organized the knowledge he had to share in different curriculums and so forth. And I sort of like grew uh, alongside the place grew. So I did go back and forth a few times, every time for months long inver- like immersions. And eventually I just stayed onwards for some years and step by step mm. to learn the arts, trained, practiced, learned Chinese, then started working to help organizing uh, the classes and to help the center run, then became a translator, then eventually became an assistant teacher to our mm. shuffle. So all of this within uh, nine years up to 2019. And in 2019, I started also just going back to the the rest of the world, down the mountain, basically, to teach some of that stuff on intensive retreats, mostly, mm-hmm. until the pandemic caught up with all of us. Right. Yeah, at which point I was in France. So I stayed in France and did what I do here. In terms of you continued your teaching in France or what you do there is something different. I wasn't. Clear. Yeah, that's what I did. I continued <clears throat> teaching when conditions were sufficient. So when I was able to host retreats for people to practice, I studied, I offered retreats. I also uh, worked just with patients to treat patients with COVID or with other conditions and sometimes both. And that's still what I'm doing at the moment. Yeah, we were going over your bio because I found your website, <laughs> and because uh, we had we had we didn't notice that you had gone and actually studied medicine as well. So, did you study with Lishifu? I studied most you, of what um, I know with Lishifu in a very apprenticeship okay. type of studying. So, Lishifu has a lot of medicine knowledge. And some of it is um, very different from the academics. So, for example, the way I learned herbs was by following him on the mountain. So we would receive Mm -hmm. students and students sometimes had uh, illnesses. So the way to treat the illnesses was always to go find the herbs on the mountains that they would need and take them to learn those herbs. So that's it. And then teach them how to prepare them and how to, yeah, prepare their own medicine, basically, whether it was in the form of decoction or peel or whatever. And so that's how I learned herbs. I learned herbs by digging, if you will, and chopping (laughs) stuff and making fires. And that was lovely and that was great and a very interesting piece of knowledge, but very different from an academic perspective. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like that gave you tools to, you know, go around where you are now in France and like, and look for herbs locally to help? Yes and no. Way? Yes and no. In the sense that, okay. of course, in France, um, the environment and the landscape is very different. So there are some herbs that are similar, but there are many herbs that cannot be found. So I did have to adjust and to adapt my practice here in France. But beyond just the subject of herbs, I think what it really taught me is a way of thinking, of feeling, 
of apprehending a situation, a person, a life story that led to imbalances and sickness. And that is very specific and particular. Like what it really taught me, it was really just so much time sitting by Alicia at his side and translating him and translating the person in front of him so the person telling his or her story and then Shuffle telling that person what to do and if assistance was needed, like go and show him those herbs or go and give him or her that treatment, doing that. So it was a lot of learning through case study in that sense. But the mo- I think the most important piece there is really the way of seeing things, the way of feeling things, and the way of apprehending things, the worldview that is Taoist medicine, directly from someone practicing like Shufu. And of course, once you're on your own in a different environment, you need to make it your own, and you need to adjust it to, your env- to the environment. And that's mm-hmm. another step mm-hmm. to take. Do you, you mentioned that there were differences in your education and an academic education, and some of those I think are quite apparent, Um, but it also occurs to me that the view that you were talking about uh, learning how to see and feel and apprehend as sort of, if I'm understanding you correctly, a central feature of this way of orienting to Taoist medical practice. I'm wondering how that is different in your understanding from more of an academic orientation, right? Does this question make sense? So like you have a a view that is kind of... Yes, the question makes sense. Absolutely. Okay. I think really... Um... Like, I'm not sure I would be able to pinpoint exactly what uh, the difference would be in terms of, like, of an academic and uh, behavior, especially because academic in itself should be defined. Like the way Chinese medicine is taught in China, in America, in Europe is very, very different. Mm-hmm. So it would be difficult to you know, just make like one situation of all those situations. But the way I've learned it was really to, how to say that? There's so many aspects that impact someone's health and someone's development. It could be one's emotions, one's relationships, one's habits, one's ways of thinking, one's ancestry, the past deeds of one's own life or the past deeds of one's ancestors' lives etc 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 and of course everything else that is more like common and right in front of our eyes like someone's diet exercise rest work environment and so forth so that to me is also how i would orient to the medicine so i guess what i'm wondering is is there something some essential thing that you feel like is distinct um in what the practice of Taoist medicine as in relationship to, and it, it can be whether it's European or Chinese or American, but I think that there's, well, the educational process is really different. There are these commonalities in many ways, at least in the conversations that we've had with colleagues from different places about kind of principles that orient the practice of traditional East Asian medicine, especially the medicines that come out of China. We've also had some conversations with folks that practice Taoist medicine. I don't know if you know Josh Painter, but we've talked to him quite a bit. Um, and so I'm I'm just curious like about where things seem to overlap and where they seem to depart in terms of this, the, the way that Taoist medicine and Chinese medical practice relate, right? So I don't know if there's more to say about that that you have, but it's something that I'm very interested in understanding more There about. is probably more to say. So like one thing that uh, in like in my experience at the temple in the way that Shufour was practicing, and it doesn't mean that all practitioners of Taoist medicine would practice the way he did. 
that makes that clear because there are different ways to mm -hmm. practice Taoism and there are different ways to heal with Taoist methods. Right? So, um, like, mm -hmm. and so the way I received and the way I witnessed and the way I shared too was a way first of empowerment of the person, of considering that the person has their hands within their own lives. So before introducing an external medicine, whether it's in the form of a herb or a needle or whatever method that is going to be, it is about inviting the person to rectify their own lifestyle, their own thoughts, their own habits, habits of mind, habits of emotions and habits of body. Maybe it could be to have them uh, get involved in a very intensive training so that their body and their mind are focused, doing one single thing, sweating all their toxins out. Maybe it could get them to be involved just carrying stones up and down the mountains or rice bags or potatoes. Again, for the, the sake of sweating out, but also bringing something that's useful for other people. Maybe it would be observing uh, the history of their ancestry and what is stuck there and what needs to be unstuck and how it can be unstuck or if uh, debt were made there, how this debt can be repaid. So there would those are only examples, but always the focus would mm -hmm. be on the person and what the person can do by themselves, rather than on bringing a medicine from the outside that can change the situation. And when medicine from the outside is used, it's always used just as a little push on your back, if you will, so that you can move forward mm. if that is needed. And then the methods themselves are many, but they are not what matter in itself. Like it could be, it could be a herb, it could be a needle, it could be a talisman, it could be a qigong training. It actually doesn't really matter that much. It could be a ceremony. It could be anything from the most esoteric to the most materialistic. But what matters first is that the person is invited to rectify something in their path before that before anything external is used to help them does that make any sense absolutely it sounds to me like you're respecting like you you were saying you're respecting the person's in innate ability to heal themselves first we're definitely inviting that and so the person also, uh, we're also inviting the person to explore which areas are not going well. Mm. Yeah, so that rectifications can be made there. That's, that's interesting because I look at my patient population in America and I think that it sounds so logical, that approach, and it sounds so... Um, organic and that is probably the hardest orientation for an american because they want the pill they want the fix do you know it's don't tell me about how i can have to change my life <laughs> to tell me what i need to take to make it better do you know i think it's difficult for everyone even even yeah even chinese people or even i think it's difficult for everyone we always wish there is something outside of ourselves that is going to fix us or to help us. Or, And of course, sometimes some medicine can definitely help, but there is so much more than that. But it's also very empowering. I would not take away the power that it gives us as human beings and as people, as person. It requires efforts, but it gives us power in the same time. Right, and that's really what's healing, isn't it? Yeah. But it's definitely difficult to implement in a clinical setting. Yeah. So do you have like an actual clinic set up or is it all part of something else? Like all part of a, a, a whole nonprofit sort of training center where you teach 
um, Taoism and and you do I don't have a center like of, on of my on my own okay. as for now so I just really uh, open temporary spaces of retreats sometimes it's a week sometimes it's longer sometimes it's shorter and sometimes I and there are some of my students that I follow up on their health if they've come with health issues. And sometimes I also just uh, work with inpatient, just like a clinic, without going mm. much going as deep. Mm. It also depends where people are at and what they're asking for and what they're coming for yeah. and what they're ready for. So is part of your work in medicine also more treatment-focused? Um, or is this wish to invite folks in like kind of a, a universal way that you're approaching your medical work with people. no there can be both there can be both as i said right i'm asking to clarify like i get that there can be both but do you have some people that you're only focused on kind of interventionary treatment with or is at least the baseline this invitation with everybody and some people take it and some people don't. Okay, yeah, it really depends um, how to answer that. So, um, well, it depends if people basically know of my background or not and how mm. they approach ah. what I do or not. Like sometimes I treat people and they don't know what is Chinese medicine and they don't know the way I studied Chinese medicine and what is my background and they just need treatment external treatment in which case i do my best with them as an inpatient and Mm -hmm. i generally try to throw in some little cues or clues Mm -hmm. for them Mm -hmm. to check in with their own lives and they take it they don't take it i don't really care that much and but that's not the let's say that's kind of like Oh, what is the word in English? Accidental? It doesn't happen so much. It mm, happens. Incidental? De- yeah, it happens depending on conditions. For example, in France, when like the second wave of COVID uh, was high up and everyone was in lockdown, I focused on working on COVID with uh, colleagues in Chinese medicine. And the, obviously, our objective was just to treat people with COVID. Yeah. Mm. Point. And that's it, you know, and in that case, people call up because, uh, yeah, because they need a treatment. So in this situation, for mm-hmm. example, it happens like that. Sometimes it happens with other patients that are sent to me by people. But most of my work is first teaching and inviting people into a practice. Mm-hmm. And within this space of teaching and practice, looking at people's health specifically individually on request and uh, helping them out to move basically into their own practice and into the explorations, observations, the rectification of their own lifestyle, which is more satisfying because you can go deeper Mm -hmm. and you can have more satisfactory results basically. Well, especially when they've made that commitment to you, they've already started to be on the journey and explore themselves. And well, they've had a commitment to yourself meditating. in that case. They're like ready to get involved. Yeah. They want to move. You know, they want to. They want to do yeah. it. They want to practice. They want to learn that. They want to do the movements. They want to do the meditations. They want to learn the methods, and of, that's much more empowering for themselves to start with. So it, yeah, so it's more interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, you, when I see, you know, 30 patients a week and, you know, 10 of them are new and don't come back, (laughs) um, whether or not they had a good treatment or not, I don't know, but like, I'm still invested the same amount with each patient because I have to be, that's my like professional integrity. So it feels like... You know, the more people can commit to it, to a full-on lifestyle lifestyle change, it's got to be rewarding for you as well, you know, because you can, you get a little bit of reciprocity 
you know, because you're investing a lot in them. It's more of a real human adventure, like a relationship that you develop for sure. It's also not easy because uh, sometimes you hit a plateau and everyone wants to go up, right? Mm. When you spend efforts, you want to see progress. (laughs) It's it's not always easy either to hold space for people to develop in that way. Sometimes you don't have results right away or sometimes you have results right away then no more results and... But it's an adventure together, at least. It's a relationship. It's walking a path together. Sometimes it's more draining and sometimes it's less draining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything can happen. No, I mean, I know you said since the pandemic, you haven't been back to China, right? No. China has had a very strict zero COVID policy. So the borders have remained oh, okay. closed. And the visas that were issued before the pandemic have been cancelled. Okay. Yeah. So it's been very clear cut in that sense, which is most folks who even lived in China on students' visa or midterms visa, most of them actually left China, but no one was able to get back as for now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to see if uh, your teacher was like... uh, at what point you started your clinic and, and practices in in France and if Lichefou had known about it and like if you had yeah, of communicated course. about that WeChat, at all. WeChat, you know, oh, okay. internet. Oh, it, yeah. You just, oh, great. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. You just, oh. just like you and me right now. You see each other on the screen and you talk. How does he feel about the clinic and everything? He feels, he feels, I don't know how he feels actually. I don't ask him how he feels. That's oh, what okay. he does. He teaches students and then his students yeah. move forward and they do what they do. And hopefully they yeah. do something with what they've learned. That's, That's what great. you want to see happen when you're a teacher. You want to see the teaching come to life and move into the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chinese culture is very different in that sense from American culture. Uh, it's not a culture of praising a lot or encouraging a lot. Quite the opposite. So Chinese culture, especially traditional, like the, the traditional culture, when you're in apprenticeship like this, you can be sure to never be doing good enough. And if you're ever doing good enough, it means you really suck. And your teacher is pretty much mm-hmm. done with you, basically. Yeah. So there's no moment that I like culture for and he's like, oh, you're doing all this. It's so great and wonderful. And I'm so proud of you. You know, that doesn't <laughs> happen. It's generally, okay, yeah, yeah. what's up? How are you doing? How is your health? How are your things going? Do you have any questions? I hear you. I studied with my most recent teacher for, I don't know, like at least 12 years now or something. And he, I can count on like one hand the amount of times he's indicated, much less said, <laughs> like, good job. I don't even think he's ever said that. I think it's just been a, hmm. <laughs> and you take that as you will. If it's not bad, then that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a slightly different nod for a, that's not good. <laughs> the shake versus the nod I, yeah a little bit a little bit yeah well we can definitely look up i think to the achievement of our elders and our teachers so there is definitely so much more that can be learned and perfected and deepened so, so that's what it reminds us always so how are you juggling? I know you're a new mom. Mm-hmm. How are you juggling that with all of this? This seems very busy. I'm not really juggling it as for now because uh, so my daughter is three months old. Congratulations. So, thank wow. You. So I'm not even <laughs> at that part where I juggle it very much yet. I'm basically still okay. in that part that I'm very much in pose. And it feels great. After all this, it's been years that I didn't really have such a pause to take care of myself and not take care of so many other people, but just one tiny one, very demanding <laughs> one. And so that's, it's, a, it's a good time, actually. It feels good to have this little moment of break. It feels very healthy, too. 
But uh, little by little, I'm going to be back in my game. And the juggling is going to happen there. Let's see how it goes. I'm kind of expecting um, having to work a lot. And mm-hmm. mostly also having to organize well. And hopefully my partner is really wonderful and really involved. So I know he will help me. Mm. And that will be okay. That's what life is. Is any of your family nearby? Of my blood family, you mean around where I live? That's what I meant, yes. Yeah, at the moment, my mother is not so far. Ah, yeah. Yeah, so I occasionally see her. Yeah, I think uh, it sounds like Lindsay's a couple of steps uh, along the journey ahead, and she's been able to arrange it in such a way and organize things in such a way that everything seems to be okay. So she has a daughter that is older now. Like her daughter was born in 2012. So she will Mm -hmm. be 10 years old now. Then it really depends on everyone's personal life, you know, and personal life's dynamics. But it's Mm -hmm. very, it's, I think the equation in the end, it's, uh, is simple is that you have to do all of it. Mm -hmm. So you just, get up and get moving or you just shift your priorities mm-hmm. at the moment Popping for sure uh, yeah <laughs> yeah at the moment for sure i'm mostly like focusing on reopening first collective spaces of practice and mm. of training where i can teach collectives and mm. i still follow up but very little just like a handful of my regular patients and so I'm less focusing on the individual right now than on the collective. I'm curious about, so you spoke about intensives and retreats, which I typically think of as being relatively long format, like multiple days, if not weeks. Is that, first of all, is that accurate? Is that what you mean by intensives and retreats? Yeah, so what I mean by intensive retreats, yes, would be... Well, right now I'm running formats that are, some formats are quite small, like smaller, small as three days, for example. And some formats are longer, like seven, Uh nine days. Mm -hmm. I haven't been able yet to Mm -hmm. set up formats that would be something like 21 days, which I would really like Mm -hmm. to. And what I mean, what I mean by intensive is that, um, so this would be uh, on location retreats. So, Preferably, people would be sleeping, eating there, and practice would be mm-hmm. constant. So eating is also mm-hmm. a practice. Sleeping is also a practice. Time off is also a practice. And anyways, there is not much time off because we start early and we finish late. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we basically yeah. mm-hmm. go through an entire day of practice with uh, different disciplines according to the time of the day and according to the topic. The purpose of that is really to have people immersed in a rhythm, in a cycle for a certain number of days and in a way that they are taken outside of their regular habitual environment. Mm-hmm. And so there is a chance there to sort of, it's a little bit like throwing someone in a washing machine, if you will to have a chance to really have them go through that entire process of getting fully involved mm-hmm. and then coming back to one's life with a different perspective and being able to... Well, and also it gives time... Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so it, was, it gives time for your body to actually change. Yeah. Right. Well, to, to, for your body to actually change, it really depends on the depth of change you're looking for. But that, us, that is still too, too, too short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah. 10 days would be the shortest, mm-hmm. probably. 21 days would be yeah. medium short. 49 days start to be okay. And over 100 mm-hmm. days would be just number one. But that requires... And do you do any shorter format things? I do shorter format things, yeah, I do. But in that case, it's more like I do two, two days, three days things where people come mm-hmm. and study, practice intensively for that amount of time. Mm-hmm. But the result and the and purpose any... are different then. Yeah. Well, it's really about, and about learning classes? methods. And I do that too. Right. Are we still... It's uh, the goal to have... 
Sorry. No, no, I'm just, I'm, <laughs> I'm just not sure what's up tricky. with the internet sometimes. So. Yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. It's all right. I'm enjoying this. Um, is is the goal to have a um a continuous cohort throughout the year? Do you want to have something that's just training all the time, or would you rather have it like ideally like hundred days at a time or six months or something like that? Well, that's a question that can really uh, see that depends on the conditions and the material conditions also and what you Mm, can have to offer something. Like if I had my own place, I could definitely run events that would be longer, for example. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping to just develop little by little, one step at a time. Right, I mean... We are talking about Taoism, right? <laughs> my, yeah, was my um, one of my teachers was able to buy a a place, a big plot of land in upstate California, and so he was able to do uh, all year round. It's, well, he they would stop in the hottest month and the coldest month, and allow for a break because it was too much to run the center like that, but. And that he had like a 10 year program and then a five year program. And now I think he's doing like one or two here and there because he's just sort of at the tail end of everything. So sounds amazing. But I think it really yeah. depends on one's vision too. Like I know personally, uh, I'm always like coming back to myself and always questioning how much I feel aligned with my, what my original purpose was. And sometimes that means re-inviting change into the format of what I offer or mm-hmm. bringing different content or different topic. So I would want to first, how do you say that? Yeah, to first like make sure I'm really like walk, walking my own talk more than sharing it and then having that extend out if it has to extend out in a very solid way. Because it's easy to get, you know, at the level that I am at with my experience, I can see it would be easy to like get busy giving as many classes as possible and getting as many mm-hmm. students as possible and promoting oneself as much as possible. But I don't think I would feel fulfilled in any way in terms of what I originally set out for. So the external movement has to go with an internal movement as well. Anyway, that sounds maybe a little abstract, but I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you no, end I, up I, being I totally... like a person that's very split between like appearances and what you are truly living or what you truly are. And that just sucks. Mm-hmm. I think it sucks for you first exactly. because that's not what you wanted in the first place. And I think that also sucks for the rest of the world. And I think in terms of Taoism, we already have some models of that in the West and we don't need more. Yeah. There's also always a questioning. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit like that. I'm always like, looking for coherence and alignment. So I'm also always questioning whether like my own deep inner values uh, can be expressed in the way I work and with the content I share. And with Taoism, with any other religion, actually, it's interesting and sometimes it's tricky because I'm very much cherishing the root of the tradition as passing on a tradition that has roots and that is really respected as it was transmitted onward to me so that it's not distorted, so that it's not westernized also for convenience or for comfort. So there is this, uh, I'm very much like looking at that on one hand and on the other hand, there are also deep inner values that I need to be aligned with. So things that I also question. One thing of it can be patriarchy. Like China Mm -hmm. in its customs is a very Mm -hmm. patriarchal country. And in some ways, Taoism can be very hierarchical. 
And what do you do of that? Mm. Which part is cultural? Which part actually makes sense in the tradition? What do you keep? What do you not keep? This is, mm. yeah, this is a constant process. Yeah. Uh, at least it's mine. <laughs> as, yeah, as a student and as a teacher. As a, just as a person also who's between East and West and who has her own story to digest. Do you mean hierarchical in terms of, you know, you have elders and you, they have a certain respect and then new cohorts come and they have, you know, they're at the low end of the totem pole and things like that? Is yes, that and mean? not only, also in the way the content, in the way the, the knowledge, the practices are transmitted like I see that once people arrive west, they tend to like do packages with their knowledge and just sell it out to students. But in the traditional way, you first learn a first step and then you get familiar with it and you train it and you practice it. And then you have to demonstrate that you've integrated it well enough. And then your teacher is going to observe that, and is also teacher is also going to uh, like so your teacher is going to observe that before giving you the second piece, and then the third piece, and then the fourth piece. Every time, every step, there is going to be an observation of what you do with that piece of teaching, and are you able to apply it? Are you are you able to integrate it? There is this, and there is also just the relationship as in your teacher is also going to observe the person that you are and how you are developing yourself as a person and what you give attention to, what you give importance to. That's why uh, there is a saying that, um, like, traditionally in China, if you wanted to become the disciple of a teacher and you would show up at a temple, you would have to clean up the temple for three years. Or chop wood for three years, or sweep with a broom for three years, or whatever, whatever chores it is you have to do, really. But that's the time that your character is being observed and is being worked on. And that relationship mm -hmm. is a very important piece. As in, you could like learn a Qigong set, or you could learn to draw a talisman over a weekend online. I see this is going on right now. What What does that mean outside of that entire context? Does it st still have meaning? Does it still have value? What does that say of the tradition it comes from? So all of these are important questions, I think. And I don't have all the answers, and the way I'm trying to proceed is far from perfect. I'm just having those questions myself. And I'm sometimes uncomfortable with not having the answer or not being sure what the answer is. I think that's a really important to have that space. To because if you don't, if you don't, uh, if you don't hold that idea, and hold that uh, imbalance, and then you you won't have something to grow into. You know, if you're just always confident in exactly what you're doing and everything you're doing is exactly right, you don't really have and anything to move into anything to expand into for sure do you know i feel in some ways as i practice you know year after year i feel like i'm always in this space where um i'm never fully confident you know i'm always like ah oh, i should know more about this oh i could know more about this or my 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 sensation my sense of touch could be deeper, could be stronger, could be, you know, more refined. And so, you know, whenever I plateau is when I feel like I've gotten something, you know? Yeah. But that's just an illusion, right? I'm just thinking about how many of the teachers that I have, um, been fortunate to study with and feel like I've learned the most from the way that I learned the most from them was that they provoked in me deeper questions, right? Um, and in some way through their 
sometimes in an active way through through sort of formal teachings, but more often than not through the way that I observe them navigate their own life work, life play, and inquiry, that it it really helps me to um, refine my capacity to inquire myself, right? Mm. And ways that are hopefully, right, continue to get deeper and broader. Um, and on the one hand, more specific, but on the other hand, held with less uh, contracted ferocity, right? So that the question can be, on the one hand, very precise, but the orientation to it is like expansive enough, at least for where I am at this current moment in my own um, being and becoming, that I, I have the potential opportunity to truly learn something new, right? Because at least in my experience, like, you know, questions are good, but if I hold on to the question too tightly, then what I'll get is an answer mm -hmm. rather than potentially answers or even more interesting questions, which I think is, you know, the best kinds of answers are more questions in some respects. At least that's how I feel these days. But it definitely can feel, uh, you know, it's interesting to do a lot of work that's related to rooting and grounding and presence and you know, clarifying uh, intentional capacity and attentional focus and that the fruits of those practices seem to be swimming more and more in like mystery and the unknown and feeling even more unmoored at the same time that it it's clear, right? on some level, I'm more rooted and grounded. And at the same time, and I can feel that, but it, it opens up into something that feels entirely without ground, you know, groundless. I don't know. I'm just riffing here on, you know, what <laughs> you were saying, Loan, kind of like what it evokes in me as I'm thinking about the, the ongoing inquiry of how tradition and preserving continuity and lineage and root intersect with the fact that there is a becoming that is also happening in the phenomenal world. Yes, and with a becoming, a transformation and a change as well. Indeed. Yeah. I think it's good also to just be able to be very open and very just at ease with not knowing, with like space of not knowing. Mm -hmm. Like one trick sometimes I find with uh, these disciplines is that uh, you can be wanting more all the time more knowledge, more progress, more mm -hmm. of all of that. So in that case, does, is it really doing the job it's supposed to do? Or are we really taking it the way it was intended for? Like there's somewhere to, we need to get more to get somewhere. Right. So Luan, I want to be respectful of your time because I know that you had an hour um, and we're right there. So this has been a, a total pleasure and a delight. And thank I'm you so much. Incredibly grateful to you for taking the time. Is there anything that you want to say in closing? Um, we will put whatever contact information you would like us to in the show notes. So no need for that unless you have a strong wish to, but um, you know, just as we, as we end this conversation, is there anything you'd like to just sure. that, just to say thank you and I'm happy it was so fluid it feels like we could have gone on for sometimes more and it would have been a lot of fun so I'll be looking forward to hear more episodes thank you for invi your invitation thank you our pleasure <laughs> <laughs>